The situation now is even worse. Flood is not above the poverty line. Um, okay, so welcome, dear listeners, to it's been a there's been a bit of a hiatus on flood casts. Uh, it might have had something to do with the fact that we won a heap of shit last year, and a lot of us got very very busy immediately afterwards. Um, but we finally sort of found a bit of time to start thinking about um, next sort of things that we can do on the cast. And um, one thing that has sort of come to my mind um, is that we, I think, need to have a bit of a chance to sit back and reflect on what the Queensland Greens have been doing over the last little bit, seeing as we had such a, um, those, those big wins last year. Um, and there's been a fair bit of talk about what's this Queensland Greens strategy. Um, and I think, so sort of coming up with a bit of a sense of, um, you know, what we've been doing, what's the background behind it, what's some of the theory behind it, um, and then sort of whatever it's, current challenges and future challenges and potentials. Um, so that's the sort of idea for this next bunch of things. And to, to sort of facilitate that, um, we've got a guest interviewer on who, you know, hatched this plot with me over a beer at the Bando uh, <laughs> a few months ago, uh, is Stuart Monkton, uh, former editor of the, uh, the famed Green Left Weekly um, and, you know, mate of the show and an old mate of mine. Um, so welcome, Stuart. Um, oh, I should have introduced myself. I'm Liam, but I mean, <laughs> maybe some people would have recognised my voice. Um, uh, so yeah, welcome, Stuart. Thanks for interviewing us. And we've yeah. also got Max on as well. So I don't know, Stuart, you want to say a few things about what we're trying to cover today? Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, thanks for giving me the opportunity to do, to do this. Um, I think it's very important. And I guess part of the thinking for me about this is uh, when I look at the Brisbane Greens and the success that you've had, what's very striking for me is it's not simply that you've had a few wins. It's quite obvious that those wins are intimately connected to your way of doing politics and that your way of doing politics uh, is very different from pretty much anything else that I can see in Australian politics and probably have for, I mean, for myself, I mean, I've, you know, back in the 1990s, got involved in left politics and joined a socialist group. And we did a whole bunch of things where I think back on that time, we did high school walkouts when Pauline Hanson first came on the scene to challenge her, the East Timor campaign, uh, which I think that solidarity campaign helped East Timor win. Uh, the largest demonstrations ever in Australia's history against the Iraq war, which is 20 years ago now, which didn't win, but it was huge. And when I think of those things, despite a whole lot of those things happening and various wins and a lot more defeats, there was never any sense that either the left group that I was in or any other left group was really building any serious roots in society. And so there's a real sense of just jumping around from one campaign to another, um, very successful or not. And the only thing really being served is a very narrow, how well that little group is, is going. Um, and, uh, increasingly my frustration was, uh, with the group that I was in and the, the far left in general, uh, is really that. And there was the need to turn away for the far left to turn away from itself 
um, and worrying about how another little far left group is going and going to the same rallies with the same people to society itself and to reach out. And I was very frustrated at the absence of that. And then I started to, um, you know, read a bit about what was happening up in, in Brisbane with the Greens, uh, read around things like Jonathan Three's campaign, some of the state campaigns there, the, the right to city uh, campaigning and, and logic of that. Uh, and it looked, I was, my interest was very much piqued. But I also felt sceptical and cynical. Um, and Understandable. As a, yeah, as a result of being burnt out from these left politics. And one of my big concerns was um, when I looked at the far left, it's always dominated by the same type of people. Uh, university educated, professional class. I mean, downwardly mobile professional classes, you know, all the rest of it. And... You know, yeah, that's the group, that's the sector of society I come from. So I'm not casting aspersions on that sector of society, but you know, it's also the sector of society that you both come from as well. Um, and is this possible? To is this real? Um, and then you started winning, and it was obvious, as I say, it's not just that you were winning; you were winning uh, because of how you were doing politics. It's very, very, uh, very obvious. And you know, and that was the the basis on which. Um, you know, I approached Liam to do an interview with, with Jacobin magazine, which was, was, was really glad Jacobin ran that and it was good, good to do. But they had its frustrations. Uh, like we had to cut a third of it uh, out for, for length. Um, you know, so um, it, by itself, that kind of wasn't enough. So I'm very, given how unique it is and given how the success, we all need a bit of hope at the moment. And it's sort of a bit of a strange feeling for me to have hope these days. Uh, but I've really gotten it looking at what's been happening up in, in Brisbane and also what's been happening since the elections, the the ways of doing politics, actually continuing to, to do the door knocking, street campaigning, talking to people around things like the housing bill, you know, the, the town hall meeting type things that are happening. Um, it's unique. No one else is doing it. Uh, certainly not in Australia. You can see examples overseas, but not in Australia. And so I think it's really important to unpack this. Um, and because it's unique and because it's successful um, on whatever scale, whatever happens in the future, it's, you know, everyone can, no one in the political class predicted the, the wins that you guys got in the last federal elections. Uh, and I think it's yeah vitally important to really unpack that. So that's that's really my my thinking and wanting to do this, um, to, you know, to draw out, you know, your political strategy. Um, and my thinking on it was we're going to do, um, you know, I think about a few of these. Uh, so to, in order to sort of set the scene before we really get into the nitty gritty, and I'm a little bit self-conscious about this part of it because I don't want it to seem too abstract or wanky or anything like that. But I think it's easy to sort of forget when you're involved in left politics, why you're involved in left politics uh, and why you have a transformative approach. Um, because I think it's very easy if you get to not understand, you can get caught up in debates. You can debate a Labour Party member who will say, well, why do, you know, why don't the Greens just vote up whatever the, whatever it is Labour put up straight away? Why don't they do that? Why are you on this, you know, you helping the Liberals, you're, you're just being wreckers, all that kind of thing. That argument makes a lot more sense if you understand that their framework is you can't transform things. You have to basically accept power as it exists in this country. And so all you can do is wriggle around the edges. And now if you have that, that approach, if that's how you think 
um, the best that you can do, it makes sense to, to have that argument. Mm. Uh, however, if you think it is possible uh, to actually transform politics and transform Australia and transform society, uh, and you know that, that there is a way forward to do that, then that framework, that debate, it makes sense from the Greens' perspective to say, well, no, like actually we, we don't just accept this, this one little crumb here. There's a, there is a lot more. So with that framing, I, I guess I wanted to ask your views on Australian society at the moment um, and why you have a transformative approach. Why, what is it that you, that you think we need to be transforming here? Max, you're the politician. Do you want to answer? <laughs> no, but answer I know this seems. I'm mad subconscious about this. It feels no, very no. wakey, but like... yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think my my immediate caveat is like we. I mean, you're right to ask the question because it's true that we can forget, uh, like you know, why we're in it in the first place, and it's yeah. good to to start there and then orient yourself from there. But to be honest, like I don't tend to think about this no. too much because no. it's like a it's a given because it's a given yeah because the because the questions that are always front of my mind is like the strategy of the way forward and the tactics to to deliver that strategy but i don't know max do you want to take a punt at this i might try to fill in the gaps if possible yeah i mean it's one of those things where um yeah you take it as a given but also you assume that everyone has that instinct yeah. Uh, yeah. which i find interesting like i do think one of the underlying parts of our politics is this assumption that um people instinctively think that there is must be some transformatively better way to run society uh, but that actually the barrier isn't so much that they don't believe that or believe in it so much as they think it's not possible to achieve. Yeah. Uh, and um, I, we found that to be the case, door knocking all the time, that even people who've previously voted for the LNP think, instinctively think, yeah, if we had, we have the technical capacity to do something much better, but, oh, it's never going to happen. And yeah. so, look, in terms of Australian society, I mean, the, maybe the first thing to say is how power works in Australia and who holds power in Australia. And, and I, I think it's a nexus, like the, in terms of who dominates Australian politics and dominates the Australian economy, it's sort of two and a half uh, industries. It's, you know, fi the finance property nexus uh, is enormously powerful uh, and uh, mining capital. And uh, one of the things about the two and a half industries is they wield, in, not only do they wield an enormous amount of power, but they command an enormous amount of wealth and capacity in the Australian economy. Mm -hmm. And uh, given the amount of um, poverty and loss of advantage, and, and by loss of advantage, I mean all the capacity to go and do things uh, and the restriction of those possibilities as a result of most people's lives being dominated by often drudging work that doesn't feel particularly meaningful mm -hmm. and or poverty, uh, and stress and loss of time. Uh, the frustration is that we know that there's enough wealth and capacity in society to do things in a way that gives everyone much more time to go and pursue the things that make life meaningful and give them the resources to go and do that. Uh, and that the political representation of those property, mining, finance nexus uh, both are found in both the Liberal and Labor Party, but these days much more coherently in the Labor Party, um, mm. who... Uh, uh, while actually are increasingly weak uh, in terms of their connection to society because of the hollowing out of trade unions and um, their capacity to campaign continues to be greatly diminished, um, 
because of the um, our as yet our inability to build a, a national movement capable of challenging that power, they sit there almost by default, wielding and acting on behalf of those ultimately those industries. And so um, they um, pursue uh, the interests of those industries above all else, which means that um, the way our society functions, the way our economy functions, uh, essentially, really, um, is willing to sacrifice ordinary people's lives and push them into ever greater financial stress and time stress and um, and uh, like tough lives as well as often even if you are earning a relatively good income not much of a life because often your so much of your time is spent reproducing your own life or working mm -hmm. they're willing to make those sacrifices time and again in, in what they frame as the national interest as long as it serves those broader um, finance property mining interests yeah yeah i think i mean i think one of the things that i um think is a big part of sort of like underpins the way that the greens in brisbane that i've sort of been involved with for years now think about this being a little different to some of the rest of the country like in terms of like the left or whatever you want to call it is the emphasis the real trying to emphasize the the good life like we don't use it as explicitly anymore um in our like public facing stuff but like the fact that like everyone kind of already instinctively knows what the good life is and it's probably different for everybody to some extent but there's some real commonalities there and they and i think everybody wants more time to spend with family and friends they want more time for themselves and the things that they they probably want more time for their to do stuff with their community uh and they want the stability that you know they don't get at the moment particularly with a housing crisis um and they want something to you know some meaning and all of that as well and there's a sense of like a good a good life that you can live and that it is being barred i think that's mm -hmm. a little bit of a different orientation than like focusing purely on trying to ameliorate like here and there little negative things that i have like i think projecting a vision of everyone being able to have this good life is a bit different mm. to a kind of a li more liberal sort of perspective where it's like, oh, well, this particular group is particularly hard done by, so let's particularly focus on them. It's like, well, yes, obviously there's different degrees of people suffering on the, like, because of the structures that exist, but what we're trying to do is cohere everyone around this, um, you know, vision that like, well, yeah, actually we, we all kind of do realize that, a stable fucking climate and you know yeah. a four-day work week and secure housing and you know your your dental covered for free and you know all that stuff would just fundamentally transform most people's lives in the country and the people who are particularly fucked over at the moment would mm. would stand to benefit considerably more so there's that universal uh universalist kind of bent around a positive and like you know, understanding that it's like, actually like life is good <laughs> and we want to like give people more of it. Um, I think gives it a more po positive orientation. That's some, certainly something we've been trying to do. The other thing I think in terms of the power structure stuff, and I'm going to get all, you know, Ralph Miller band on this just briefly, but only, only just to say that I think there's a little bit more of um, in our approach that understands that like, I think the top line communications from the Greens is like, well, politics is corrupted because the corporate donations flow from big corporations into mm. the, the Labor and the Liberal parties. And if, but then there's the teal argument there, which is like, oh, well, if we just got rid of them and we got integrity back in then well problem solved pro politics would function again it would be you know our representatives would really represent us which is i think you know not mm. the whole story like we've been looking into 
if you look at things like even like the Infrastructure Australia Board, which is something that, you know, I've been looking at in, in my work at the moment, it's been stacked out by just heads of like Santos and, you know, uh, banks and whatever for forever. And so there's these various public institutions. It's like, I suppose what we're try I'm trying to say is like the problem of so-called state capture, like is what, mm. you know, I think Greens like to call it these days. It's like, well, this, the state's something that has been captured or like was captured from the beginning. And it's not as simple to say that if we just replaced politicians with better, more integrity politicians who don't take corporate donations, that anything would fundamentally change. And so that goes back to what Max was talking around. Well, we just need to build a movement that's capable of wielding enough power mm. because it's not about just a, a one or two little technical fixes on the level of like donations law reform or something that would like get politics representing us better again. It would take a movement in society capable of actually um, transforming the structures that exist themselves. So that's, I suppose, my two cents on, mm. on all that. So I suppose that starts to flow into the strategy questions. I, I don't know if there's anything more you wanted to chat about on that front, um, Stuart. Um, it, it does flow into it, but it might be worth just unpack. I am interested in the comment Max made about the influence, because uh, it, well, it does get into what you were just saying, uh, Liam, about is the question just one of one of donations? And maybe worth unpacking a uh, comment that Max made. Uh, you made Max on Facebook after uh, the the last climate bill, mm. which he commented that the negotiations were essentially with the fossil fuel corporations. Mm. Uh, that seems a, that is a much more wholesale comment than what you often get, or a deeper comment than you often get of, which I guess is sort of a little bit what Liam was saying about, well, the question is, yes, yes, of course, these corporations that get their donations, they have their influence and people might see it as that's one influence that's there. Then there's the environmental NGOs, there's, you know, right. trade unions or whatever. And it's a bit unfair, isn't it, that these corporations have a bit of the upper hand, but that's how they see it. They see it mm. as relatively neutral territory that these groups are coming in and wielding a bit of a over the top things. Your comments seemed a much more profound one that no, actually you're dealing with the political representatives of these corporations. I wonder if you'd be interested in un unpacking that. Yeah, I mean, I um, had deepened my understanding of all of this by reading into the dynamics of a previous fight um, uh, around Rudd's attempt to introduce a mining tax mm -hmm. uh, in, um, I think it was like 2008, uh, and uh, ultimately him being, or 2009, whatever it was, and him, him ultimately being dethroned for Gillard. And um, there's a lot of fascinating tidbits in there, but one of the more amazing ones was when um, Rudd was contemplating introducing a mining tax, he, he had concluded that he couldn't bring that proposal to Labor cabinet because there was too many people there who would immediately leak it to um, the <laughs> mining industry. Like at the time, mm. Labor's resource minister, um, I think it was um, uh, the guy that ended up being, Liam, do you remember his name? He ended up being... Is it uh, head of Appia. Martin, Martin. Yeah, Martin Ferguson. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, uh, was the resource minister. And so, and he had deep and went on to have very deep connections with the mining industry in terms of being head of their peak mining oil body. But so on the one hand, it is partly just the personnel. Like 
there that you talk about that revolving door and that certainly exists on the other hand um as um liam mentioned this sort of takeover of government institutions and expertise for instance the head of the climate change authority previously um, um very senior figure in the gas industry like the government's climate change authority's head um is uh head of the gas industry but i think there's a broader thing here as well in that um labor um have ideologically inculcated this view that the interests of the mining industry and their um, growth uh, are in uh, one in the same as the national interests, quote unquote, the national interests. And so this is this is hegemonic that um, if you affect the profit margins of the mining industry or if you in any way um, contradict them, uh, then you are going to set Australia as this sort of abstract country back. And so when negotiating with the Labor Party, anything that could be seen to affect the growth or the profits of the mining industry was seen as one of these sort of key tests, not whether or not we're going to cook the planet or whether or not we can find a way to make them pay enough tax that we can offset any sort of economic impact by raising enough money to invest in alternative industries or whatever. Um, and uh, they, so it's sort of, it's a, it's a trio of things. It's this sort of flow interconnection between um, labor personnel who are either planning or have gone on to work for the mining industry, the sharing of expertise that the sort of senior figures in the mining industry often uh, end up going to work for the Labor Party or vice versa, mm. but also this broader ideological notion, which has existed in the Labor Party, I would argue, since its inception, um, but certainly is more dominant now. Uh, and, you know, I, um, that was just became incredibly apparent during this debate uh, and negotiations over safe over the safeguard mechanism, uh, where essentially um, it did it was difficult to demarcate the position of the Labor Party from the position of the mining industry, uh, and uh, and at that it became it was certainly a clarifying moment for me that um, the words spoken by the Labor Party uh, at an at a um, uh, including people like Madeline King, who's the Labor Resource Minister, um, who, if you check her register of interest, by the way, like she is not, it's not all donations, right? But she is flown around by the mining industry. Like she's on private With an expensive jets bottles of port. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, and she would get up in Parliament and talk about the importance of the mining industry and how important it is and um, how we must further their interests. And so, yeah, I think it's a trio of things and it was became very apparent then. Um, and that is where that sort of concept of universality is really crucial because we will even doorknock people who work in the mining industry. And our argument to them is, you know, your company pays no tax. Like, and imagine if they paid tax and then, you know, your local school was better funded or um, your, you got dental into Medicare or you knew your kids would be able to move into an affordable home when they grew up. And so, uh, like counterposing the Labor Party's view that the growth of the mining industry is what ultimately serves everyone interest with this idea that actually, no, you're, you're, you're pursuing a particular private interest at the mm. expense of everyone else. And ultimately, the collective universal interest bar, say like the CEO of Santos, is better served by um, taking the power of those corporations and um, I suppose breaking their hold over politics by the Labor Party and Liberal Party, and then mm. using those resources to further everyone's life. 
Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would just quickly say on the Labor Party, because it's something I've been thinking about a fair bit, because, you know, like there's always this thing, well, if you just replaced a few of those people and if you got rid of those donations, what, like, surely they could just be totally, like, totally different. So why aren't they still the, what, why shouldn't they be seen as the vehicle? Um, but I think, like, to my mind, it's um, like from their inception, there's always been, like you say, Max, that ideological, like, commitment to maintaining, effectively maintaining social peace which I think is part of this, like, okay, well, and the social piece is usually in favour of whoever's dominant at the time. And I think that has allowed a kind of path dependency to emerge, like over time from one defeat to another or like one success to another has led to enough kind of personnel accumulating with the same kind of perspective, enough kind of power structures internal to the party accumulating like upon each other such Mm. that it's become path dependent. Like, sure, it's not like an original sin that, you know, and it's not like Mm. it's just a purely psychological thing on behalf of them. It's not just one or two don't like, you know, if we got rid of those donations, it's become the kind of path dependency of that organisation, which I think you know, we were chatting about before we started this show that like, I think you've got to have a clear headed analysis about um, if you want to have a strategic kind of um, like strategic clarity of like what needs to be done to build the movement to kind of like fundamentally transform Australia is understanding that like, I think the path dependency is what the terms I'm using to kind of like basically say, well, there's no, there's no way they're going to change. They are so fundamentally, and one of the one of the mechanisms was like for when Rudd tried to introduce that um, that uh, mining resources tax. mining tax. Well, the the threat of capital strike was there, mm. and but but it's not like that capital strike was there, and it was like oh, but we're going to fight this capital strike. It was like as soon as the capital strike idea was raised, like fucking well the party's just not capable of dealing with that right so it's again the path dependency is like whenever the context or like the Murdoch press is going to say this about us like oh okay well we're path dependent on not you know dealing with that problem like we're going to avoid that problem so I think that's that that's the kind of the way I, I I sort of and I think that's you know in terms of negotiating with the mining corporations well they're they're the dominant, as Max said, they're one of the two and a half. I like two and a half. I mean, there's a few tech bros as well, but I don't think they really count as a, power, a major power structure. <laughs> no. um, but the two and a half industries that, that dominate. And so if they don't, if they're path dependent on maintaining social peace in the, in the national interest, well, then they're going to repeatedly. And, and I think this latest Labor government is the most perfect, like distilled example of that, shorn of any posture at, at uh, mm. you know, radical transformation. Yeah, and I, look, and I, it's always sort of always worth pointing out as well that that the results of that are obviously catastrophic. Like that yeah. that conflation of the national interest <clears throat> with a very narrow strata of the the mining corporations it equals Lismore being wiped out. I mean that that is the consequences, and of course the flip side of that is also um, the potential, which you sort of you know touched on the question of, yeah, well, we can have a four day week. We can actually house everyone. We can do all those things. Uh, but it seems to me like I'd be interested to know going even a little bit deeper on this into how you found parliament as an institution. Um, because it seems to me it's not even the question of the, there's also been studies into the revolving door question, uh, affecting the effects of public service. So at the top of the public yeah. service, yeah. Uh, you, you, there's, and that's less visible, less public, because they aren't public figures. But there's been studies into it that shows, just like there is with yeah, ministers, 
uh, there is a heavy revolving door with corporations, uh, with banking and fossil fuel corporations. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in your observations, sort of probably going into parliament, having a bit of a sense of that stuff, like you know, understanding it in, in abstract. Have you actually found walking into this? Yeah, it's certainly been confronting. I mean, um, the one thing to say is, and you mentioned, Stuart, the um, sort of the domination of public service, the way I see it, and this is one of those things where it has actually gotten worse, like the Australian state has always been uh, <laughs> like kind of maybe to say problematic, but um, it, it has um, a little bit proper. Yeah, um, <laughs> the Australian state cancelled. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that's right. I'm tweeting it. I'm tweeting it now. It's, it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but um, is the the way I think of it is the privatization of expertise, uh, mm. and the and um, by that I mean what becomes clear talking to any lob like any of the sort of people that operate around parliament whether it be the media people who might represent like a lobbyist for particular organizations or um the observing the way the labor and liberal party um view the role of the australian state um which is now essentially just to facilitate um private corporations and private interests to solve social problems and um it's amazing the way um every speech in parliament every event every time the media comments on things works to continually constrain the scope of what's seen as possible with the resources and technical capacity mm. we have to hand yeah. and um it's um watching the way that building operates it's interesting to me that it is a cu crucial node it's sort of this loudspeaker to say don't expect much from us um, don't think that we actually have the capacity to do or change much, but our but certainly what we can do is smooth the way for the growth and operation of these private interests. And you know, to give a practical example, it is beyond the realms of the media's or anyone in this building or the Labour or Liberal Party or anyone to conceive of the idea that, for instance, we could embark on a mass universal build of public housing where mm. we essentially mm. Um, take say 50% of the capacity of the private market instead go and build really high quality homes built by the best architects and town planners. Mm. Um, that is, that's just not, that is considered this sort of um, like, as if you're saying there are aliens on the moon is if you suggest that despite the fact that the, all of that capacity exists. And so certainly um, you watch it, even when we go into parliament, just it, it, the way it berates and crushes you into um, even just putting that aside, it's like, well, of course you could say that. And it might, it might actually be technically possible. Um, but politically we've decided that it's not. And the way this building operates is just to sort of reproduce that constantly. Mm. I mean, I know where it's it just, you, you like, you feel fully insane. Like you go insane in that building, Stuart, yeah. like you go, <laughs> go insane up is down there. Like, re which is why I suppose, and maybe we'll get onto this and I'll let, yeah. sorry, I'll let you finish Max, but like, no, no, why I, I, I forced myself, despite having an extreme, extremely busy week last week at work, I was like, no, I have to go out and door knock somewhere. And I went out <laughs> and I door knocked in the gap and which is, you know, like it's a relatively wealthy sort of part of town, uh, really. Uh, it's a beautiful part of town, actually. But just immediately the conversations I was having with these people were like, even, even though they're browbeaten, even though they've been told that they, can't, like, we can't imagine anything better, and they've sort of adopted some of that understandably, right? Because they haven't seen things get better. Even they kind of 
really get it. Even they kind of are like, oh, no, we could like, yeah, I'm pissed that Labor aren't just building homes, right? Um, and so that's why you need to get out of that damn building because it's just up is down. It's, it's, it's uh, brain breakingly. Um, and, and it is, I think, Max, you're right. Like, it, it's like this whole set of institutions, all the university courses that feed into it. The fact mm. that KPMG, like, has just got his fingers in everything, the Productivity Commission, like, everything just reinforces it for the, for the senior staff in the minister's office, the senior bureaucrats, all the way through to the junior ones who want a piece of that, who want to go, go up higher, you know, um, and, then the, and then the ministers themselves and then the media class, and it yeah. just is an, it is an echo chamber in that sense, but it's a very powerful one. Well, and it's, I noticed, sorry, go. Oh, it, it is just, it is genuinely remarkable, and... Um, the I had this similar to Liam in the lead up to the um, housing bill when we talk about later, but maybe just to say that in the lead up to that, everyone in the media and um, this sort of political class, and by that I mean all the people involved in NGOs and things, the concept that the Greens could stand up and say, well, no, we're not going to pass this because it's a broken bill. And actually what we want is the government to build way more homes was considered like, oh, you're crazy. You're suggesting that you're mad. Oh, are you self-destructive? Like, are you a crazy person? Um, and yeah. and then we went door knocking over the weekend in places like Ipswich, where the yeah. Greens polled 6% of the vote, 6% in the last federal election. And 80% of people said, don't you dare go down there and um, just vote for that. We want you to go down there and fight. And um, it's... Um, there is something to be said that Canberra was picked as the location for Parliament. In, and, and I think it actually, look, I'm going to, I hate to get all geographical here, but um, <laughs> there is something to be said about the history of Australian politics that our nation's capital and it's, and one of the sort of power centres of power centres of politics is so geographically removed from the broad, like apart from obviously Canberra, but from the vast majority of Australian people. Yeah. And, um, it's this, um, I know Scott Morrison was made fun of for talking about the Canberra bubble, um, but maybe this is the one thing he got right. Like, it, it, it's hard to describe it as anything other than that. And it's interesting to me to watch um, the way this um, this operation of, like, a limited amount of power, there's obviously lots of other cent much bigger centres of power in Australia, Australian society, um, warp and break people, anyone's brain who goes in mm. there and... Um, one of our superpowers, I feel, is the capacity to just go and talk to ordinary people and go down there and get up and say things that from the perspective of 99% of people in that building are yeah. mad or considered radical. But if you speak to any random person on the street, they're like, well, that is common sense. Yeah. And um, I actually think one of the things you talked about hope before, Stuart, yeah. one of the things that gives me a lot of hope is no one in the political in the Labor Party has happened upon to the secret of going and knocking on a person's door and asking what they think and talking about it and realizing that they are increasingly completely alienated from the common sense or center ground of what like the average person might think. Yeah. Um, and uh, that is what I, I often have a deep loathing for the operation of that place. But um, I feel a vindictive um, pride in the fact that while we might sound mad down there to them, yeah. to the vast majority of people, we sound like we're just talking common sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's actually a really good point. And it leads into the next thing I wanted to, to raise about how we view politics. But very quickly, I would just also add an observation from, uh, you know, watching and listening to a bunch of media interviews that you've done 
Max, is mm. that the way the media completely echo, well, their starting point is exactly the same. Their starting mm. point is that that, that framework in Parliament and the, the, all the limits that you're talking about, uh, they're always quite hostile to you. Go, well, how, well, why don't you just, you know, back later? You know, it's, their starting point is coming from that perspective and it just mm. seems as out of touch a lot of the time as you know listening to a Labour Party spokesperson. And this goes for the for the quote unquote progressive media establishment, uh perhaps even oh, yeah. more so than than, yes, absolutely. than other, other sections, right? Oh, you know I don't want to cover get... for yeah. And I want to be clear about what their role they're playing as well. Like what they are doing um functionally and very crucially is crushing hope. Like yes. they, you know, and, and and lowering expectations. Like they, that is the specific reason that they ask those questions, which is to say to the people listening, um, the you the this wacko greens dude has strayed outside the narrow boundaries of set what how way society can change or the way what politics can do, and yes. don't you dare hope for anything more, um, and how dare you? In fact, you are. Uh, it is amazing how, as Liam said, up is down. You are a bad person for thinking that um, we, sh we given the fact we have enough construction materials and skills and wealth in this country to ensure everyone has a good place to call home, maybe we should use those to do just that. And that is a morally bad thing for you to do. Um, <laughs> you know, like that, that is generally, and it's completely fucking maddening. <laughs> well, I remember watching from afar the experience in Britain of the Jeremy Corbyn leadership of the Labour Party, where the biggest enemy of that seemed to be the Guardian. Um, yes. You know, I mean, everyone expects, you know, the Telegraph, the right wing media to be anti, yes. but the role of the yes. Guardian in constantly undermining him. But anyway, I don't want to go down that path. No. I want to um, ask. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's relevant to this. Yeah, absolutely. it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, probably is further down the track a question of how do you, how do we counter th things like that? But right now I want to get given a terrifying question, Stuart, that yeah. <laughs> yeah, apart from door knocking, yeah. <laughs> just having like literally thousands and thousands of people willing to door knock every fucking weekend. Um, yeah. Helps. Anyway, we'll get to that perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We will. But I think, um, that question of given everything that you've just described, there's often, a bit of a disconnect even on the left when people and even the far left as well when people talk about politics it seems very defined by that political class setup that is there's a general view that basically the divide in australian politics is you've got the right you've got the liberal coalition um you know and a few others right populists like you know the uap the far right like one nation and they got the murdoch behind them you know oh. the murdoch press behind them then the other side of that you've got the labor party and then you have say the greens who are like labor but uh more morally consistent or the moral conscience of labor mm. uh and you know they're gonna you know, push labor on these things and if you go further to the left you often get on the small far left groups they're like oh we kind of like yeah we kind of like the greens we want some of the same things but we're more uh, i don't know we've got better theory uh we're, we're revolutionaries or yeah, yeah. we've got cooler words yeah or, or we do more grassroots activism that's one you're going to hear yeah. as well which is a strange anyway we <laughs> strange thing but it's like the whole point is yes. looking at that framework and it strikes me particularly with the comments you're making that does not map onto society yeah yeah, absolutely. So you I think knock on someone's yeah. door. That's not how they view it. 
Yeah, yeah, and totally. I mean, Max, you've got heaps of examples of from your dawn working. I just in the gap on Thursday, and Stuart, I was telling you about before we started recording. Door knock. This woman, first person I actually spoke to in the door knock in the Arvo, um, and fuck, it was just exactly the breath of fresh air I needed from all of this nonsense. Um, was um, like chatting to her. She she's a um, shift worker at a public hospital, and and her immediate thing was, yeah, like the thing that's on my mind is staff burnout after COVID because no one's like they basically like, oh, COVID's over. We can just power down. Um, funding so that we're back to like below capacity again um and but half of my colleagues have basically left because of burnout and now I can't take leave because I can't be backfilled and they have no plan to deal with this and she was furious about all of this but I got into this chat and she said like well look you know uh, I used to vote uh, liberals because I know they're good on health and education and but now I suppose I hate all of them and I you know I'm, I'm kind of sort of voting greens these days because you guys talk a bit more sense and we talked then about the whole sort of you know why don't we tax the mining corporations more to fund health and education she was 110 percent on board with that she immediately said well you know I think um I pay more tax in the dollar than the mining corporations do and this is which is absolutely true um but the fact that she said Oh, I know the liberals are good on health and education. Um, I was chatting to some to some friends in a, a some some younger sort of greens um, on the west side of Brisbane in a group chat after that, saying like, "Hey, you know, I had this chat, and some of, for some of them it was really difficult to understand, and they were kind of like making out like, is this person stupid? Like, does she not realise that the liberals are bad on and actually labours the party of health and education?" But for this woman, it was a totally coherent thing to say. Like it was from her experience of having years of working under a Labor state government who had gutted funding for these things. She had understandably just kind of, I suppose, heard something or whatever, picked up something that, you know, so that idea that there's some spectrum for her, that the Liberals are on the like bad on health and education, Labor's good on it, maybe the Greens go a bit further, was just complete, would have been a completely meaningless thing for me to try to um, talk about. I think Max, you've got even more extreme examples of some of those sorts of yeah, and and it's um it's one of these things where if you look at any of the data, like any normal I I like half intelligent person could reach the conclusion that politics isn't defined in that like old left and right, the liberals being right, the Labor being left, and it's always been strange to me that people haven't picked up on this earlier or the way politics is done, and I suppose this is just um, the function of ideology and how powerful it is, but like that that old classical liberal versus labor type thing would make sense in the 20th century. And a lot of people have heard me talk about this before where, where 50% of the pop working population were members of their trade union and part of the labor movement. Mm. Um, and in opposition to the formation of the liberal party, which formed as in response to the direct threat that the labor movement posed to ultimately end up forming almost like a uh, insurmountable majority in Australian politics. And so, you know, the Liberal Party formed as a coalition of sort of corporate, domestic um, corporate interests and rural, like sort of ruling class rural interests as a coalition, uh, ultimately with the nationals. Um, all of that has fallen away. You know, like obviously trade union memberships dropped to 14% and um, the um, domestic capitalist class is far less of a sort of important force these days and is much more dominated by multinational mining and financial interests as we've talked about. And so, you know, especially since um, that 1990 sort of labor turned to neoliberalism, um, 
all of that has fallen away. And if you look at all of the data, like the number of people who say they're a loyal Labor liberal voter these days in the latest ANU study of electoral politics, um, I think it's 13 or 12% of people say that they're a loyal Labor voter and 17% of people say they're a loyal Liberal voter. And then the vast majority of the rest of the population yeah. don't think in those terms. And yeah, as Liam said, I mean, like, this is one of those things where door knocking has been such a good process of political education hmm. because you you go into that with this theory and say, well, actually, a lot of people just don't aren't constrained by the, that socio-political divide anymore and are just sitting there thinking, well, I have all these views, but there's no way for me to be represent these views or anything meaningful to change. And there's no force in society to represent what I believe in. So I'm just going to switch off. But, you mm. know, the classic one I always talk about, and this is stuck in my head forever because I think it's illustrative of everything. But the guy I knocked in Holland Park who said, oh, you won't like me, mate. I thought Tony Abbott was too left wing. <laughs> um, and we ended up talking about, he, we talked about how terrible it was that all of these public institutions had been privatised. The energy system should be run, should be a publicly owned institution, we agreed. I talked about dental and to Medicare and he said, oh, that makes heaps of sense because, you know, um, if people go to the dentist for a cheap checkup, our health system's going to spend less money on health complications if they don't get that checkup. And then I said, oh, have you ever thought of voting Greens? And he was like, oh, I thought you guys were a bunch of kooks, but actually all of this stuff here makes a lot of sense. And he probably did end up voting Greens. And and hmm. um, um, this is the, uh, I, and I, Liam and I have, and a lot of us in the South Brisbane and, and Queensland Greens have tried to instill upon this across the broader left is that um, one of the f mistakes the left has made is set up the general population as the enemy. Like, hmm. You know, this concept that the reason change hasn't happened is, oh, because there's all these nasty conservative people that vote yeah. for the Liberal Party or vote for One Nation. And it is the complete inversion of that. Yeah. Like, that is just the opposite of reality. Like, the reality is that there is a cheap and nasty political class who crush people's expectations and work in tandem with these NGOs and political institutions to browbeat and destroy the capacity for positive change that exists in the population. And the vast, vast majority of people are good natured people with the right instincts. We're given the chance and given a pathway. Yes. We'll push and fight like crazy for a better future where everyone gets what they need to live a good life because people are inherently social. Like I don't, this whole concept of human nature, whatever, like I don't need to get into that debate, hmm. but instinctively people are social beings and they want to be part of a nice society. Uh, and because it's also materially benefits them. And um, I think that is one of the key new, weirdly enough, innovations of the Queensland Greens <laughs> is people are nice and good and the political yeah. class are yeah, awful, yeah. decrepit people who, yeah, who will pursue above all else their capacity to further the interests of a few big corporations at the expense of everyone else. And their own psycho, yeah. like, you know, the political class gets so much out of this because they get their like weird, like first material perks, but then they're kind of like weird kind of self d destructive, like sense of ego out of it all. Like, I mean, it's just, yeah. But I think, I think, I mean, it's also to the credit of the Australian people that despite the collapse of any civil society kind of organizing that might kind of give them a coherent kind of like social democratic impulse or whatever that it's still basically there for like probably 70 percent of the population perhaps even more yeah. uh, and that's certainly been our experience um and i guess i think the um the door knocking i think you, you hit it on on the head max so it's like you go into door knocking with at least that as a broad assumption and you're going to get an incredible education about like how people think and what they want if you go in with a different 
perspective. If you go in and think about this, like, yeah, oh, there's right. And, and as soon as they say something that hints at them being a bit right wing, and then you, you freeze yeah. up and you think, oh, no, I have to convince them that they're morally wrong for being right wing. Well, mm. then you're going to get a shit education. You're going to learn exactly what you want to learn or like learn nothing at all. But if you go in saying like, okay, there's, and I suppose that's the other thing, like the door knocking experience, if you go in and you think, okay, people are broadly good, They've got all of that, those great instincts, but why would they have a perfectly, why would anyone have a perfectly coherent, fully, you know, fledged, like worked out theory of social change and a perfect picture of like the utopian thing and that they tick every box? Why the hell would they have that? Point to anything in the world in society that would have given them that. Like, of course, they're not going to. So they're going to have all these weird contradictory things and all that sort of stuff. And actually what the, the joy of the of door knocking and, and getting out and having these chats is being being able to relate to those very real and like very rational contradictions that are in people's brains. And quite often the main contradiction is that they have, you know, I think a lot of people instinctively are against things that they don't think are possible because they've been told or, or they can understand that rationally say, well, you know, who's going to, you and whose army is going to actually make this happen. Um, and so they, you know, part of our job is to try to actually win stuff so that they kind of go, oh, maybe more things are possible. But that's probably the main contradiction to have to, to you know, not, not, not convince them that dental and Medicare is good or building heaps mm. of public homes yeah. is good. Just that maybe we could even do it. Um, it tends to be the only, uh, you know, um, and that was the other thing that this, this woman I door knocked in um, in the gap on Thursday said, because we just sent around a letter about this idea of free and, and fully frequent and connected public transport um, from Elizabeth Watson Brown, the MP for the area. And she said, like, I read the letter and I initially was like, oh, this is bullshit. And then I read it again and I was like, ah, you know, that makes a lot of sense, but it'll never happen. And then in the conversation, she said, well, actually, now that I think about it, you guys did win and I didn't think you were going to win this seat. And so, I don't know, maybe like, maybe down the track it is possible. And so like, it went from actually stop lying to me, you dickheads. Like this is, you know, we can't make public transport free too. Oh, it's rational, but it's not going to happen. And then it's like, oh, actually it might happen. Like, you know, I've, I've, I've been wrong and like maybe good things can happen. So, you know, I mean, it's just, a yeah. It does speak to that. It does speak to that. Just the the role the Labor Party play is to go and speak to that woman and say you shouldn't hope for more. Yes. Like, and once yes, you look absolutely. at that view, watch the communication. Like, for the um, everyone listening here, go on Twitter, listen to the way Labor representatives talk, and then view it through the prism that their primary goal is to talk down your hope for anything meaningfully to change. And then I think it's a really clarifying moment because those arguments like, oh, if we do anything, yeah. the Murdoch people, papers will attack us or, um, well, we tried that last time and it didn't work or, um, mm. well, the Australian people are too conservative and we just, we just yeah. need to stop Dutton. That's the lie. Like they are lying to you. What they actually are saying is we're trying to resolve the contradiction of mm-hmm. representing mining and finance capital while also retaining our tenuous connection to the vast majority of working people. And the only way we can resolve that contradiction is to say, well, we would if we could, but we can't. Um, And um, the other thing is that, you know, the the point was Liam making around people not thinking much can change. Well, they're fucking right. Like the you and who's, they have, this is my thing of like ordinary people are experts in their own lives. And often like in the immediate sense, the balance of forces do not yet exist for us to win dental and to Medicare straight away, but we're on the pathway to doing it. And the line we used during the Griffith campaign, which was like, 
look, we're not here to posit to say that change is going to happen overnight, or if we win Griffith, the world's going to change for the better straight away. But the first step to positive change is getting people elected who at least fight for what you believe in. And people appreciated that honesty. And um, it's like, it's this process of bringing the broader population in. And I think that's the other thing the Queensland Greens have done well is never to promise the world, but to say, no, we're on a pathway to building a political institution that's capable of wielding enough power to make this change happen. And this is one of the steps along that path. And um, like, I, I think that there's a dispassionate honesty I find amongst our movement and recognition that we're on a an 18 year plan to build a, um, uh, you know, a political movement capable of winning that change. And I will say on the 18 year plan, for those that don't know, we're ahead of schedule on that. So, um, <laughs> Good. um yeah, like, I think that's really hitting a lot of the, the key things. And what this is setting up is, well, essentially broader society versus that political set up uh and on the question of hope i mean i always found in activism that yeah it's a lot of the people are apathetic i found no people will actually do things and mobilize if they believe it has that they can affect it and i saw this most dramatically in the iraq war campaign (laughs) 20 um where Mm. why did we have the largest ever demonstrations in australia's history and around the world biggest ever because people thought they mobilized they could stop this war why did it suddenly disappear? Um, which was a very traumatic experience for those in the middle of it um, to go, th- go through those highs and lows. I think it really scarred my generation of leftists. Um, why did yeah. they stop? Not because they suddenly one day they cared about the people of Iraq and the second day they didn't. It's mm. because they were demoralized by the fact the government didn't listen to them. They had mm. illusions that one big demonstration here and around the world would be enough to stop them doing it. They didn't understand how power worked. Um, because I haven't had that experience. Um, I just yeah. sort of think whether, no, I think I will further unpack one more thing. And then yeah, yeah. get, well, cause I think, I think the demoralization thing is like a, quite a critical part. And I think yeah. early on in, in, uh, what, how we were theorizing what we were doing, I think in 2017, that featured in a way with, re- with direct reference to, uh, Iraq, um, also to the Kevin Rudd government and to the Copenhagen climate summit, like all of which were moments of hope that got crushed and yep. that we were emerging 10 plus years, 10, 10 years later, um, having had a, a decade of the tail end of the decline of the kind of movements that were around in the lead up to those things, um, like just continuing to wither away. Right. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, and everyone's at home. I mean, that's the other thing. It's like no one's going out to demonstrations. No one's organizing community, like, well, at least where we were, you know, like there mm. was sporadic things like stop CSG campaigns and whatever. But like where we were, people had just retreated um, to their homes and had decided that, like, sadly, I've just got to, I'll look after my, my community. I'll look after my neighbors. I'll look after myself and my family. Um, mm. I'll try to eke out a good life where I, like, as much as I can. And I'm just going to fucking switch off from, from politics because I can't, I can't make, I can't, anything I do is not going to make any difference. Mm. And, and that tomorrow, like Stuart, that's in, entirely right. And one of the things I think, um, which has worked for our movement in the Queensland Greens is um, the refinement and perfection of our style of door knocking. And what that has meant is that when people do go to the door, 
they have this quite remarkable and politics and, and life, or in a way, sometimes life-changing experience where they change someone's mind mm. or they win to the degree that they've never, that's never happened in politics often for a lot of people on the left. Like yeah. this, this moment where you brought, bring someone into our coalition and they have never considered it before. And it was your words and your relation to them that did it. And um, one of the things we did at the start of the GABA campaign in 2016 is I had this presentation where I was like, okay, so this is a very small group of people who've gone out door knocking and it sort of worked. But what if we broke it down? Like, what if there was a hundred of us doing it every week? And what if that meant that we got a thousand conversations a week? And what if we did that over 10 weeks? And now you're starting to see at that scale, oh, all of a sudden we're winning an election. And mm. um, uh, there's moments where we won in Gabba 16, where we won in Maywa, but perhaps more importantly, when we won in South Brisbane in 2020 and then Griffith, were these confirmations of that reality that that thing worked. And mm. um, that's it's created a snowball effect where every time we win, there's a group of people out there watching us quietly, like you did, Stuart, in a way, being a bit yeah. skeptical. Yeah. Um, your experience is entirely consistent with the volunteers we speak to who then think, ah, oh, is this real? And then watch us win and then come and door knock for one or two times and experience yeah. it personally. And then they're hooked. Yeah. And that's what gives me actually, I often, Liam and I often wonder like, oh, is this going to work? But like, I, and it might be that like the power, powerful, powerful forces we're fighting are, are ready for the fight and maybe they'll end up, you know, maybe they'll end up pushing us back. But I actually think not these days because I genuinely think these days our biggest barrier to winning is our capacity to organise in more areas. And um, precisely because of that own personal experience of changing someone's mind and getting them to vote for a politics um, that hasn't really been represented or talked about in Australian political history. Okay, that was the end of part one of the chat that I had uh, recently with Liam and Max. Uh, and I thank them again very much for the chance to have this conversation and to floodcast the podcast for hosting it. Uh, part two will be out in about a week on floodcast, where it is that you get your podcast you can hear it as the kids say i believe uh and that's probably wherever you're listening to it right now so check back in a week for the rest of this discussion and as liam said at the start this is the first of a series of these interviews so we're going to hope to get out probably another four after these two uh hopefully every week so check that out see ya.